DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Monsignor Charles Murphy, who is the director of the Permanent Diaconate for the Diocese of Portland, Maine. He is the author of a number of scholarly articles and several books, including The Spirituality of Fasting, At Home on the Earth, Wallace Stevens, A Spiritual Poet in a Secular Age, and Belonging to God. Monsignor Murphy is the former academic dean and rector of the Pontifical North American College in Rome and served as part of the editorial group working in Italy under Cardinal Ratzinger on the third draft of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which became the fourth and final version. With Monsignor Charles Murphy, we go inside the pages of Eucharistic Adoration, Holy Hour Meditations on the Seven Last Words of Christ, published by Ave Maria Press. Monsignor, thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted. It is an extraordinary work that you've penned here with Eucharistic Adoration, Holy Hour Meditations on the Seven Last Words of Christ. I was able to take it in with me as I went for my hour, and it was so edifying. Thank I'm you. I'm so happy to hear that. That's just what it's, it's a book for meditation before the Blessed Sacrament. What led you to feel that this was needed at this particular time? Well, I've been a pastor of four parishes in the course of my uh, 50 years as a priest, and I was also rector of the North American College in Rome. So those two together, uh, I promoted Eucharistic adoration in whatever parish I was in, and I saw the spiritual benefits not only for the individuals who devoted an hour faithfully every week to adoration, but for the whole parish. And uh, it was especially effective when the adoration was going on seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And the parish itself was a sense, had a sense of spiritual energy and connectedness. Uh, focusing on the Eucharist is just irreplaceable. Uh, the people who had what they call the sacrifice hours in the middle of the night, they told me that that was not a sacrifice, that they looked forward to that time. It was uh, uh, refreshing and renewing. So uh, from that experience, I realized that more and more people are spending time in adoration, and there really were not a lot of resources out there to help people to spend that time profitably. Then in the Roman piece, I got to know Pope John Paul II rather well. I was in Rome when he was elected pope, and um, I had invited him to our seminary to be with us for four hours, and I had mass with him three times, and I realized how much the uh, adoration of the Eucharist was important in his life, and he was a beautiful example for me of Eucharistic adoration. Why do you suppose, Monsignor, that adoration kind of fell off as a discipline or even a practice within parish life. Yes. Well, I've been a priest long enough to see kind of the back and forth on this. And in the immediate period after the Second Vatican Council, um, there was uh, an emphasis on the Mass as an action uh, with active participation of the people in the Eucharist. And since the Eucharist was being offered in the language of the people, the emphasis was on their active participation. But the um, centrality of adoration sort of uh, 
lost out, uh, where the tabernacle itself often was removed from the center of the church, sometimes even to a separate chapel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the concept of uh, spending time before the Blessed Sacrament perhaps was diminished as merely a pious practice, but it's certainly coming back forcefully today. Well, you spoke of the sometimes unexpected blessing or grace that parishes experienced, and individuals as well, I'm sure, from uh, entering into that devotion fully. Well, I do, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I love the definition of uh, prayer that St. Teresa of Avila wrote. She is, of course, the doctor of prayer, mm-hmm. and it defines perfectly what happens uh, in our time of adoration. She says, prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking the time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. And I think that's, that's Eucharistic adoration. Mm. In the layout of the book, you uh, not only help us to actually guide us in how we can enter into this practice as individuals as we go before the Lord, but you, you give us some companions yeah. in our reflections. Uh, how did you select those? Well, I wanted to uh, imagine, uh, I call them witnesses, um, to the seven words, people who um, exemplified that word, especially in their lives, and who had um, reputations for uh, fidelity to the Eucharist. So, for example, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, uh, I thirst is the word that I pair her with, and of course that was her selected uh, mantra for the founding of the Missionaries of Charity, that word, I thirst, of Jesus from the cross, and so it was a natural for me to pair her with that word and draw on some personal experiences I had of her um, when I was in Rome, when I met with her, so that's how it went. I love in the in the first reflection on the first words that, of course, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. Uh, that is one of the most, how can we say it? it it's the most puzzling, most alarming. It's uh, for anyone who is a Christian who hears our Lord cry that out, it just, it, it breaks our heart, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I hope in that uh, meditation that I do, uh, I mentioned that, our Lord Jesus prayed the Psalms throughout his whole life, and it's not uh, unexpected that he would be pre- praying from the cross. And uh, this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a verse from Psalm 22. And as I say in my reflection, we believe the Lord uh, prayed the entire psalm, uh, which begins with a cry of desperation and ends with thanksgiving because the Lord realizes that the Father is always with him, is always with us uh, in every circumstance, even when we feel perhaps abandoned. Hmm. I think it's so important, too, in these reflections that you're guiding us in as we're in adoration, as we're before the Lord, that you give us those times that we should be silent. Well, thank you. I, I wanted to, uh, this is, these are my suggestions, kind of help people to use the time profitably, because I realize that 
people might say, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Um, I quote the uh, Corey of ours, uh, St. Jean-Marie Vianney, who had that wonderful experience in his parish of seeing a um, peasant farmer come up every day, uh, hitch his horse to the near the church and go into the church and pray for an hour before the Blessed Sacrament. And finally the Corey had the courage to ask him what happens there during that hour and the peasant answered truthfully and honestly and beautifully, I look at him and he looks at me. And really that wordless conversation is what we aim for. But perhaps when we come to church, uh, to we have lots of things on our minds. So I suggest that the first part of the adoration is we try to uh, forget everything that's on our mind, what we have been doing before the hour, what we're going to be doing after the hour, and ask the Lord to focus our attention solely on Him and His presence. So I give some techniques there of how to clear your mind of distractions. And then I suggest uh, maybe even if you want to, to say a decade of the rosary right then and there. That is a way of calming your mind and, and giving you a sense of peace. And then we begin with one of the um, meditations on uh, the seven last words and read that word over and over. And finally we stop reading and we stop thinking and we just let the Lord speak to us um, in the rest of the time. So that's kind of the dynamic. And at the end, uh, to say a prayer of thanks to the Lord for this privilege of conversing with him. Wonderful. I, I do really appreciate those dialogue points. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, the, one of the incidents uh, witnesses is Pope John Paul II, Blessed John Paul II, and I, mm-hmm. I just, there's an anecdote that I repeat in the book about him and Eucharistic adoration. I had visited Cardinal Descour, who was a dear, dear friend of his all his life. He worked in the Vatican before Carol Waitiwa was Pope, and uh, when uh, Cardinal Waitiwa would come to Rome, he would stay in Cardinal Descour's apartment in the Vatican. Um, and when I visited with Cardinal Descour, he had had a stroke a few days bef- after the election of John Paul II and left him uh, unable to walk. And John Paul II took this as a mystical sacrifice on the part of his friend as an offering for the success of his pontificate. So when I met with uh, Descour, I knew this was a significant person, and I was waiting to see him, and I spent a little time in his chapel, and then he came in to see me, and he said, did you notice anything unusual about my chapel? And I said, I really didn't. Uh, but he said, well, in Italy, you know, the chapel church floors are terrazzo or marble, but I've had my floor uh, changed. It's now wood. And he said, I did that because of my friend, Carol Waitiwa. I discovered that when he was visiting with me, he would be spending the entire night lying on the floor before the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel in adoration. And he said, I didn't want my friend to catch a cold, so that's why mm. I, that changed. That was so impressive to me. My goodness. I mean, th- those types of stories that you share with us, and the, again, the witnesses that are, accompany us 
essentially, can if we allow them to, like Dorothy Day. I mean, we hear so much about her today because of uh, the hope of some that she will be declared a blessed son. Well, I I had the privilege of meeting her, uh, both in the Bowery, and she came here to Maine, where I live, um, in the 60s, and I had a lunch with her here. And I realized that this woman, who is known for her active promotion of charity and justice, really derived her energy from the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Uh, She could never have done what she did uh, without the strength she derived from the Eucharist. And I have some quotations from her uh, to that effect. Um, So uh, I guess that's kind of a theme of the book, by the way, when I talk about uh, St. Edith Stein and and some other uh, of the saints. They were very active people, uh, but they were also contemplative. And the way they derived their strength to... uh, the world was through the Eucharist. There are others who derive that source, that energy, to be able that, or should I say, not so much energy but grace to grace. do extraordinary grace. things. That's the word. That's the word. Yeah, I look at John the Twenty Third, Blessed John the Twenty Third. Yes. I mean, you talk about um, extraordinary things through an unexpected source. Well, you know, I was privileged to be in Rome at his election. I arrived in Rome in 1958 to begin my studies for the priesthood. And as soon as we arrived, Pope Pius XII died, and we had the election of this 77-year-old man uh, to be the Pope. It was almost like Pope Benedict's election after a long pontificate uh, of John Paul II. So here was this man, 77 uh, we didn't know anything about him. Um, he didn't speak English. He spoke Italian and French. But um, as you know, he wrote a diary every day of his life from the age of uh, 16 when he entered seminary to the end of his life and called Journal of a Soul. And I really draw on Journal of a Soul to uh, explain how central his time before the Eucharist was in all his life from the earliest days to the end. Mm. How wonderful. Uh, another, a tremendous witness, of course, is St. Teresa uh, Benedicta of the Cross, Edith Stein. Yes. And, and to ponder with her on that, especially that Father forgive them. They yes. know not what they do. Exactly. And you know, she's a remarkable, remarkable person because she became a contemplative. Uh, she was abandoning the world um, to spend her time in contemplation. But she came to the realization that even from the convent, she had a responsibility for what was happening in Germany and especially to her fellow Jews. And she realized that as a contemplative, she still had responsibility uh, for the world, uh, not merely in prayer, but by every way that she could. And uh, for me, she's a beautiful example. Well, her um, whole theology was based on the cross of Jesus and sharing in his sufferings, and which she embraced. I wouldn't want to miss, uh, as we talked about the first cry of our Lord on the cross, the, the witness that you would have us journey with, and Simone Vio. Yes. That that surprised me, but it also was quite a delight. Well, she was a remarkable woman and a philosopher, a Jewish person like uh, 
Edith Stein. Um, she was a woman of extreme scrupulosity, and uh, she hesitated to become uh, baptized, but she believed in Jesus as the Son of God, and she believed in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And I quote that beautiful mystical experience she had during a retreat of reading a poem um, and with Jesus asking, inviting her to come and eat, and uh, she hesitating, and then finally accepting. Uh, that was, a, for me, the essence of the Eucharist. We hesitate out of humility, but we are overwhelmed with this invitation. The prayers that you offer, too, at the end of those times of reflection are really very lovely, Monsignor. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I just felt there a treasury from our heritage as Catholics, and uh, I the, uh, the many of them were originally in Latin, but I thought these would also could be used during times of adoration um, as a uh, help to meditation. It is, I, I think, so fitting that you bring us to the great, uh, can we call her the Apostle to the Sacred Heart? Uh, oh, St. Margaret Mary. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I put her in there because I've been a student of the spirituality of St. Francis de Sales. In fact, I wrote another book called Belonging to God, uh, a spirituality for lay people based on his uh, spiritual teachings, the introduction to the devout life. And uh, she was a woman who I think had severe mental stress, and she was saved by the spirituality of St. Francis de Sales, who taught her to be gentle with her own spirit and she, who had this great sense of self-loathing, became amazingly uh, the promoter of the love of Christ, which she experienced. She became, for me, it was like Cinderella. She was the person who, the ugly duckling who wasn't invited to the ball, and then she's in the partner of the prince, and she becomes the advocate of the divine love which she has experienced in the world. And, of course, it was from her that we have devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Mm. And, and Monsignor, we are experiencing quite a unique moment in the heart of the Catholic Church right now, yes. um, especially going through a particular season of Lent, but also yes. with um, anticipation of a, the transition with the Holy See that you're so familiar with. Yes. Well, I was privileged to uh, get to know Cardinal Ratzinger working on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I, I was invited in after the third version of the Catechism to work on the final fourth version and uh, out in Frescati, and that's really when I got to know him extremely well, although I had met him when I was rector in Rome. He gave some seminars for us, and I used to pick him up in my car and in the car, we had some wonderful theological discussions. Um, so he's a remarkable man, a very holy man, and uh, I'm sorry for us, but I'm happy for him. I hope he has more time to do his own prayer and reflecting uh, without this heavy burden that he's been bearing. I don't doubt that a lot of that prayer will be before the Blessed Sacrament. I'm sure it will be. You also, Monsignor, if you don't mind, I'd love to speak just a bit about the spirituality of fasting. Oh, thank you. That's very much in my mind these days. In fact, um, Sunday I'm traveling to a campus uh, here of the university in Maine 
who meet with the students about the spirituality of fasting because I think Catholics of this younger generation are not really familiar with it. And uh, that's why I uh, wrote this book, Rediscovering a Christian Practice, the Spirituality of Fasting. And uh, I just, uh, I find there's a lot of resonance with Catholic people, young and old, because the three great pillars of piety, of course, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, are prayer, fasting, and charity. And somehow fasting became very minimalistic and uh, marginal to our life, and as if it were something negative or could be replaced by something else. It's one of the three great pillars of piety, and uh, it's thrilling to see Catholic people being reintroduced to it. What would you say is the the element that was so torn out of our fasting understanding? Yes. Well, you know, in my book, The Spirituality of Fasting, I mentioned a conversation I had with Pope John Paul II when he visited our seminary. It was just he and I at the table. It was Lent. And um, the Vatican had instructed us that the Pope would eat only soup and bread because it was Lent. And uh, so over the uh, our conversation, he said, I've just returned from the United States. He said, my first visit to uh, your country as Pope. And he said, I was really puzzled by the collapse of the practice of fasting. What has happened, he asked, what has happened? So it was really only years later, a couple of years ago, that I finally had an answer for him. And... Uh, because certainly fasting and abstinence from meat was a very much part of Catholic life. I mean, it was part of our Catholic identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could look around a restaurant on a Friday and know who the Catholics were because they were not eating meat. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow it became something optional or minimal. And uh, so I, I, um, I think the, the uh, Pope Paul VI wanted to bring it back. He... Uh, wanted to give it a more spiritual uh, underpinning, uh, but sadly, it was left up to the individual countries to decide what they wanted to do. And as you know, in the United States, Meatless Fridays became optional, uh, except for the Fridays of Lent, and mm-hmm. fasting was reduced to two days a week, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. In your heart, Monsignor, what would you hope that the practicing Catholic who is able to fast, how would you want them to begin to enter into this if it's not an understanding that they yeah. fully comprehend? Well, I'd say that, first of all, there are two kinds of fasting. There is um, total fast of all food and drink for a limited time, and that is focused on the Eucharist. You remember when we used to fast from midnight and not having any food or drink from midnight till we received the Eucharist the following day? Mm-hmm. Uh, that creates the physical sense of hunger, uh, creating an empty space that only God can fill. So that's total fast for a limited period. But then there's partial fast uh, for a more extended period from certain foods and drinks which has a penitential nature to it. It's to repair the effects of sin in our life. We can um, have our sins forgiven through the sacrament of reconciliation, but the effects are still there. And that's why we need penitential fasting, uh, for example, during the whole season of Lent. So I try to lay out a program really based on our Eastern 
Catholic and Orthodox friends because they've kept it more faithfully than we have in the West. Hmm. And there's no reason why an individual Catholic or a Catholic home, a domestic church, could not enter in more deeply into that rich prayer. You hit on the essential here. Uh, when Mass, we heard the prophet say, um, gather the assembly and proclaim a fast. This is something we do together. Mm-hmm. It's not just an individual choice. That's part of what made fasting diminished. We should, as a family, as a household, as a parish, decide this is what we're going to do for Lent and commit ourselves to it together and build ourselves up together in Christ. And as you do so beautifully, Monsignor, in the your Eucharistic Adoration book, also in this the spirituality of fasting, you give us so many helps, so many, so much guidance. Well, thank you. I draw on my pastoral experience and and my living with people, and I I just uh, am thrilled to share these insights. Well, Monsignor, I wish we had more time, but that's the beauty of being able to have access to your work. And do you have any final thoughts for us? I would say we're in the Lenten season now. We're entering into the desert with Christ. Uh, We're focusing on the essentials. We're trying to clear our minds and thoughts of everything else. And so we focus on prayer, fasting, and charity. Prayer before the Eucharist, fasting in the imitation of Jesus, who spent these days in fasting and prayer, and then works of charity. So I think these are our priorities. Beautifully said, Monsignor. Still still the pastor to so many. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, and I hope your event goes well. Thank you so much. With Monsignor Charles Murphy, we've gone inside the pages of Eucharistic Adoration, Holy Hour Meditations on the Seven Last Words of Christ. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to AveMariaPress.com, the website for its publisher, Ave Maria Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download these discussions, along with many others, go to DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of DiscerningHearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.